Deuteronomy chapter 4. Now, Israel, hear the decrees and laws I'm about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land the Lord, the God of your ancestors, is giving you. Do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. You saw with your own eyes what the Lord did at Baal Peor. The Lord your God destroyed from among you everyone who followed the Baal of Peor. But all of you who held fast to the Lord your God are still alive today. See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when he said to me, assemble the people before me to hear my words so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their children. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while it blazed with fire to the very heavens, with black clouds and deep darkness. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sounds of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. He declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow, and then wrote them on two stone tablets. And the Lord directed me at that time to teach you the decrees and laws you are to follow in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman or like any animal on earth or any bird that flies in the air or like any creature that moves along the ground, or any fish in the waters below. And when you look up to the sky and see the sun, the moon, and the stars, or the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshipping things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. But as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron-smelting furnace, out of Egypt, to be the people of his inheritance, as you now are. The Lord was angry with me because of you, and he solemnly swore that I would not cross the Jordan and enter the good land the Lord your God is giving you as your inheritance. I will die in this land. I will not cross the Jordan, but you are about to cross over and take possession of that good land. Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. After you have had children and grandchildren and have lived in the land a long time, if you then become corrupt and make any kind of idol, 
doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God and arousing his anger. I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you this day that you will quickly perish from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You will not live there long, but will certainly be destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and only a few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. There you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or eat or smell. But if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have happened to you, then in later days you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your ancestors, which he confirmed to them by oath. Ask now about the former days, long before your time, from the day God created human beings on the earth. Ask from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything so great as this ever happened, or has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire, as you have, and lived? Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testings, by signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds, like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Besides him, there is no other. From heaven, he made you hear his voice to discipline you. On earth, he showed you his great fire, and you heard his words from out of the fire. Because he loved your ancestors and chose their descendants after them, he brought you out of Egypt by his presence and his great strength to drive out before you nations greater and stronger than you and to bring you into their land, to give it to you for your inheritance as it is today. Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. Keep his decrees and commands which I am giving you today so that it may go well with you and your children after you and that you may live long in the land the Lord your God gives you for all time. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Shanti, for reading that so well. Uh, it's a long passage and it's a challenging passage, so uh, please uh, join with me as I pray for God's help to open our eyes. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, we pray that you will please help me to speak what is useful to build your church this evening. Lord Jesus, may you help us to see you in your word this evening. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Growing up in India, I saw idols everywhere. That's been a hot favorite word this evening. Every street had at least one temple. Almost every vehicle had an idol on the dash. Some colleagues even kept little idols on their work desk. And then I moved to Australia, oh, a Christian majority nation with churches on every street. But hold on, there were hardly anyone there, or some turned out to be not churches at all. In fact, Shirley and I were the only people at work who were Christians. But what did all these people believe in? Who did they follow? 
Well, there wasn't any physical idols or marks on their forehead to, you know, indicate to me what kind of idol they worshipped or who they feared. But they were all driven to some goal, some ideal to, that they served day in and day out. Ah, maybe it's that great Australian dream, that standalone house, that patch of grass. Nothing says it, you've made it like that, isn't it? Or maybe it's, it's that future beautiful holiday by the beachside. That's what life's worth living for. Well, if you can't handle the pressure now, well, yoga, you need yoga to calm your minds and rejuvenate your body. Nah, mate, you need to knock heads hard in this tough world. Nothing says you're invisible like sporting teams bashing each other on the field. But if your sporting team loses, well, I just need some more beer. That sweet gold that washes away my sorrows. Friends, don't you see, like the ancient Israelites, we live in a pluralistic world where we find different things to suit us and to meet a certain need. We find our identities in them. We power life's pursuits after those things. But into this world, like then, God speaks and says, there is no other. He is the only God. His way is the only way to truly live. And he is not like anything else or anyone else. Like it is now and back then, to say your God is the only God was offensive. And Moses is preaching this challenging message of God's oneness and uniqueness. But hold on, why is God so insistent that we acknowledge and respond to his oneness and uniqueness? Why does he want us to recognize that he is the only one? We see that this was the central thrust of Moses' speech in verse 39 um, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. Moses' speech actually began all the way in chapter 1, and now we are doing chapter 4, and in verse 40, the very next verse, his speech is going to end. I hope I'm not as long tonight, but we'll see how we go. But even, as, even, as we, okay, even if we accept that the God of the Bible is the only God, what am I supposed to do with that? Well, Moses says, if the God of the Bible is the only God, then the godly response to that is to let his word shape us. Secondly, fear his jealous love and forsake idols. And thirdly, come to our merciful God when we fail. But before I launch into all that, and uh, I want to make a quick and an important side note. There's language here of dispossessing uh, inhabited land of war and God asking them to do this. And some of this can be difficult to process. And it's not meant to be a reflection of what's happening in Israel or Gaza at the moment. We didn't pick the sermon series for that. But do take time to speak to Ali, Mike, or John if this is something that's bothering you. And processing violence in God's word, you, you need to really take time to read that. And there are some, some helpful guides in our home group study that has been sent around. So let's begin now in verse 1 of chapter 4. 
Now, Israel, hear the decrees and laws I'm about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land the Lord, the God of your ancestors, is giving you. Firstly, we see that Moses is teaching them God's word. Decrees, laws, commands, they're all short for saying God's word. But where did he get this from? Well, we read that this event where he got it is described in verses 10 to 14. I would really encourage you to follow along. It's a big passage, so I'm not going to be able to quote every verse, but as I reference things, you might be able to get an idea of where we are. And so here at Mount Horeb in, in, in Mount Sinai, God meets with his people and, and he presents to Moses those ancient iPads. No, no, sorry, the tablets that we call Ten Commandments. And, and so it says in verse 14, so it's, and so Moses is doing what he, uh, he's doing what it, what it says in verse 14. He's, he's teaching the people his word. We all love instructions and commands, don't we? Oh, what fun it is to learn them. Maybe you're not like my kids who often get fed up with their dad telling them over and over again what to do. But notice with me in this, in this passage these themes that I have highlighted uh, in the slide behind me. Again and again, over and over in this passage, we see the call to follow, to obey, to go about with care, to reflect and practice and model to the future generations. There are even commands to remember, to remain faithful and not to forget warnings, not to get corrupted, to fall in love with idols. I can already hear my son's voice in my head, okay, okay, dada, I know, I know, I've got it. But friends... We need to see the heart of God here modeled by Moses. The actual intention here is more like that of a practicing craftsman who is training the next generation. They watch closely. They understand by doing, seeing, being taught, being guided by their parents who themselves are practicing the craft and perfecting it. Friends, God is not exhibiting some superiority complex when he calls us to trust in him alone. Rather, he is supreme. He is the only God. Therefore, it's only his word that can shape us because he alone can give us life, life of eternal flourishing. His word is what guides us to that life that is promised in Jesus because Jesus is the ultimate model, our example, our target shape. You know, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees quoting this very passage in John chapter 5, verses 37 to, 30, uh, 37 to 40. He tells them, well, you hear the voice of God. You have his, his covenant. It all testifies about me. But you just fulfill the law, you go about it as though by doing it, you can save yourselves. It points to me, his son. And so he concludes in verse 39, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. That these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Only in Jesus can we find life, true life? 
The Pharisees followed God's word legalistically as a way to merit their own salvation. They missed out on seeing that all scripture was pointing to Jesus. There is no life of eternal flourishing without the Son because Jesus, being one with God, for a time came down as a man after emptying himself of the glory of God. He willingly took human flesh. He came down for our salvation. He died for yours, mine, and the sins of the whole world. Only Jesus defeated death and rose again, never to die again. Uh, die again and offers us that new resurrected life of eternal flourishing. It can start with us now if we come to have life in Jesus. Where are you this evening? Have you ever come to Jesus? Secondly, friends, God's oneness and uniqueness calls us to fear his jealous love for us. Like, like Dan so put it so well this evening, I often, uh, I'm worse than my kids. I roll my eyes at God. I gloss over his word. And I tell him time and time again when I read his uh, scriptures, yes, I've read that before and I ignore it. I subtract from God's word. I quote scripture out of context to excuse my comfortable lifestyle. And sometimes I tend not to trust in what Jesus has done for me. Yes, Jesus is our eternal salvation. But sometimes we end up toiling for now, for our families, as though it is, it is in our toil that we can secure ourselves. We don't trust God wholeheartedly. We doubt his goodness and in the end, we do what everyone else around us does chase after the things of this world. Moses warns us in verse 23 and 24, do not give in to the pursuits of idols like everyone else around you. Be careful not to forget the covenant the Lord your God has made with you. Do not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. What does it mean? That, the, that God is jealous. But before we get into that, what are these idols? Where do they start? Why do they have such a grip over our lives? Well, we see in verses 16 and in 19, it describes them as objects that corrupt, things that promise pleasure, that seduce us, that lure us away from God. When we get complacent, we enjoy God's good gifts and slowly God's wonderful order of creation gets twisted. God gave us the sun, the moon, the seasons and potential in creation for man to cultivate, to, to make out of it good things like clothes, wine, music and, and to celebrate. But these, but these gifts become idols. They overtake the creator, the giver of good gifts. In Romans 1, 21 to 27, Paul, uh, Paul explains that idolatry starts in the heart. We stop giving God glory that is due to him. Then our hearts are hardened. We lose our gratitude for God. Our minds and our hearts get corrupted. We get sucked into uh, our futile ways of thinking and evil desires take over. 
We, we look at things like work and other things uh, as, as in place of God. We put our trust in something that is a lie, that isn't a God, that is lifeless, that is mortal, that is fleeting. We consider them to be glorious, something worth chasing after. We end up worshiping and serving these things because we think from it we, we can be satisfied. From it we can draw that life that we are longing we twist God's good order of, of pleasure, of sex in, within a husband and a wife to be something that can be found anywhere and with anything. Friends, such are the effects of idolatry. And we see one of those events referenced in, by the word Baal Peor in Deuteronomy 4, 3 to 4. Baal was a common way of referring to local deities. It just means God of this place called Peor. And this is recorded in Numbers 21, 1 to 9. But actually, these, this event must have been very fresh in the minds of the people as Moses spoke. Because it might have happened only a few weeks from when this camp, when Moses is doing these, these big series of uh, talks uh, and, and renewing the covenant, yeah, this, it's happening in the, it happened in this very place. The people are probably still raw from the tragedy that happened. Well, what, what happened? Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 10, 6 to 8, he says, they gave in to idolatry. They sat down to eat and drink and indulge in idolatry. And... He then says, therefore, we shouldn't commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 of them died that day. Friends, these are an example for us to not let our hearts be set on evil things. Friends, can you imagine? Their mates, the ones that Moses is speaking to now, survived 38 years in the wilderness wandering, Same came so close in chapter two and three, they experienced the victory of, 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 of conquest, of, of getting some part of the promised land and, 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 and actually seeing some of their family members settled in. They were about to enter into this larger promised land of milk and honey. And what was meant to be a time of celebration turned out to be a time of tragedy because of sexual immorality and idolatry. So Paul's instruction to them in, uh, in Colossians chapter three, verse five to six, is put to death. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to our earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Friends, Idolatry is that which captures our heart. Those things that we crave after, that takes our allegiance and gives it to him, uh, to, to that thing instead of him to whom it's supposed to belong. It's a greeting, it's a coveting. And when God's word exposes us to it, we need to be quick to put an end to it, not feed it, not hide it, not let it fester because we risk falling under the wrath of God. What do you long for this evening? Where is your satisfaction and joy in? Are you consumed by greed for financial security 
or power and position? What are the idols that are consuming you and you have been collecting and being enticed and, and it treats you and, and for a while it gives you a pleasure but it ultimately never satisfies? Friends, when we give in to them, God has a right to be angry with us because we belong to him. It says in verse 20, Moses reminds us in our passage that how he brought the people out of Egypt while they were still slaves, God rescued them. Jesus likewise has completed his work of saving us on the cross. He offers that new life that, that we need. In, in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, we, we are reminded that God, who loved us so much, who did not even spare his son for us, is ready to give us all things, all things that we need for this life. But we spurn his love. We treat him like one of our many flings and pursuits. Friends, we kindle his anger and incur his wrath. God is jealous for what truly belongs to him. Friends, we are, we are meant to be God's inheritance. We are meant to be his bride when all of eternity, uh, all of history has passed and new earth and new creation as, as we sang comes down and Jesus inaugurates that we will be shown to be his inheritance, his beautiful bride, and therefore only Jesus is worthy of our adoration, our worship, and our affection. This jealousy is a righteous jealousy of a spouse that is saddened and grieved by the unfaithfulness of a partner. God is so zealous to restore our relationship with him that in his love he did not even spare his son. This is not a vindictive jealousy of a husband that harms a wife. No, it is a costly love that disciplines a child. Friends, we are not equals with God to complain against his anger or demand his forgiveness because without Christ, we are all objects that deserve the wrath of God. Are you still growing in your reverent fear of God? Finally, friends, we see that his uniqueness dis uh, is displayed in his faithfulness. Even in the face of our unfaithfulness, God chooses to remain sovereign and faithful and invites us to come to him in repentance, not wanting anyone to perish, perish because he is a merciful God. Have you ever disciplined a child? I mean, I've got a bit of experience because I've got three boys and I, I get enough practice. But maybe you've babysat a friend's son or a niece or a nephew or, or have been in the place of a child. Well, you know what, how discipline works. You set clear boundaries at the start. And if, you, and if they don't follow through, well, you then make sure that you, you follow through with the bad consequences that you told them at the start. And so that next time they will learn from it. Well, this, we see Moses experiencing one such of God's discipline in his own life. In verses 21 to 23, Moses doesn't get to enter the promised land. 
And though this was because the people exasperated him in a moment of weakness, he, 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 had, a, uh, he had a failing. And, but yet here, it's not a tone of blaming, but rather it's a tone of a mother pleading with her child who has had some hard life lessons that she has learned and wants and does not want the child to miss out on God's good gift by repeating her mistakes. Actually, friends, God doesn't always follow through on his threats. He often relents when people truly recognize their sin and repent, like, in, like we saw in the story of, uh, see in the story of Jonah. Because God is concerned about each and every one of us in this world. He's not wanting anyone to perish. In 2 Peter 3 to 9, it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting you to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Friends, this is what is expressed in the verses, in verses 25 to 31 in our passage. After you've had children and grandchildren and you've lived a long life and, and, and you arouse the Lord's anger, it, it goes on to talk about how we have seen in our own lives, people fall away, people drift. Families that have been Christians for ages, now there's hardly anyone who, who follows God. This life is alluring. We can be distracted. We can drift away in, and we can turn bitter to God and be hardened by his discipline, be, be, turn bitter towards his discipline and be hardened by unbelief. But again and again, the, uh, the writer of Hebrews warns us, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Because complacency like these people who were living here for, uh, after many generations leads to idolatry. Idolatry is like a poison that corrupts, kills our faith and eliminates our trust in God. Friends, God doesn't actually need us. He's not insecure and wanting to control us by inducing fear. Rather, God is, wants us to love him and come to him in reverent fear. He wants us to run towards him wholeheartedly, exposing our sin and corruption and not hiding in fear of his retribution, like we see the example of the psalmist in Psalm 32. In Psalm 32, the, the psalmist starts by hiding God's, uh, his sin from God. Then his spirit and his body is crushed. Realizing his foolishness, he says in verse 5, Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquities. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Friends, God's character and heart is one of love and mercy. His purpose of discipline is to teach us uh, in, in the way we should go. Friends, he doesn't want to fight us like a horse fighting us when we try to drag it by the bit or the bridle. He wants us to recognize his love for us. He wants to instruct us and, and, and counsel us with his loving eye. In verse 10 of the same psalm, the psalmist says, many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. 
Friend, what is that worry that troubles you this evening that, that, you, fa- that, that, that you think that uh, chasing after something will solve that? Friend, God's unfailing love and mercy can be trusted because he is faithful to the end. We read in verse 29 of our passage in Deuteronomy 4, but if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him. If you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul, when you are in distress and all these things have happened to you, then in the later days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your ancestors which he, which he confirmed by an oath. Friends, as God promises here, Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is faithful to complete what he started in you. Friends, we see that here the language used is one of covenant and contract. But you know what? God doesn't write himself out of the story when you fail. Even when you fail and you walk out on him, he still waits for you, for you to return to him. He actually comes after you. He is faithful to the very end. Don't fear that you will miss out and you need to follow God's word or do this and that in order to earn his love. As the song says, he is still working on me to make me what I ought to be. All I need to do is to wholeheartedly and with all I have, trust in him and he will do the rest. Oh, what a God we serve. As Moses goes on to say in verse 32, friends, who is like our God? Ask now about the former days, long before time, from the day God created human beings on earth. Ask from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything so great as this ever happened? Has anything like it ever been heard of? Friends, you know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of the cross as we sang, who has felt the nails upon his hand? Who has borne the guilt of sinful man? Friends, this story continues in our lives. This is is your story. This can be your story of grace and mercy. Have you come to Jesus? Have you experienced his mercy and grace? If not, why not? He is waiting for you. Friends, the Lord is God. But is he your God? Is he the Lord and God over your life? There is none other. There is nothing that deserves even a little, little, eeny, weeny, tiny bit of our lives. And so, as Moses did, let me invite you and me to respond to this verse in, uh, in verse in 39. Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is none other. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for you are such a wonderful God. You are so patient with us. Lord, help us to come to you to expose our sins, the affections of our heart, the idols that we crave after. Please help us to rid them. Lord, Lord Jesus, 
Please, Lord, help us to give of all ourselves to you because you gave all of yourself for us. Oh, what a magnificent Savior we have. Lord Jesus, help us to do that. In your name, amen.